produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons. On this edition of the program, we find out how to make a successful career leap. The decision to make a big change is not a small decision. I think people do themselves a disservice if they feel they have to transition immediately. In my experience, it's more organic than that. I've always tried to really follow my passions and take any occasions that comes my way. I've never put limits, I've just had a go at everything and anything. And we learn from one expert how smart professionals change careers. Portfolio careers are getting very popular where you might have an anchor job, but you get your income from another source or two other sources to see if this fits. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. Have you ever felt stuck in a rut looking for the next challenge? Have you ever had an idea for a business and thought how great it would be to start your own venture? only to have those dreams dashed when reality and risk really hit home. For my first guest, after a two-decade successful stretch in the wealth management sector, he finally followed his passion for mixed martial arts and took a leap of faith, fully committing to his business, Wimp to Warrior. If you're seeing this video right now, I know that you're currently unhappy about something in your life. Wimp to Warrior is 20 weeks training five days a week with some of the best coaches and for sure the best teammates you'll ever find. To get Partnering with Conor McGregor's coach, John Kavanaugh, the company recently completed a $7.5 million capital raise. To find out how Nick Langdon made his successful career leap, I spoke to him earlier. Nick Langdon, welcome to the program. Hi, Whitney. Lovely to be here today. Nick, tell me a little bit about your backstory. You were CEO in the wealth management sector until you took a brave leap into co-founding a startup business based around sport. You've been so passionate about mixed martial arts. That must have been quite a decision to make on many, many levels. Uh, yeah, Whitney, it's, it's, it's kind of when I hear you play the question back to me, I think, <laughs> God, who would be... Who would be foolish enough to try something like that? <laughs> That's right. Um, but, um, yeah, look, I think like many decisions, I, I think, or many good decisions, I hope, that they are they are gradual. It's something that sort of gnaws away at you. And I suppose, you know, having been a financial services executive for the, the last decade of my career, I think I felt a gnawing sense that I wanted to do something on my own, um, that I wanted mm. to to build a business, build a company. And I started looking at the economics of different sectors and spaces that I was passionate about. I mean, you say that there wasn't necessarily the moment, but there would have to be a moment when you make the decision, when you mm. go, okay, it's go time, mm. press the green button, mm. let's, let's jump. Yeah. I remember taking annual leave to travel to London for a week and attend various pitches and, and entertain different opportunities for the business. And I remember flying home thinking that I either commit to this and really find out whether it's going to sink or swim, or I keep trying to do it at night and on weekends and taking annual leave and, and really not be in a position to truly um, get it to realise its potential or at least know whether it was going to work. Mm. Right. So it was really, I suppose, if I distill it down to a moment, it was a flight 
from Heathrow to Sydney. Um, and as I reflect on that, thinking wistfully about travel, but don't we all, Nick? Don't we all? So much. <laughs> So much. I just started to get all misty-eyed describing yeah, to you. Yeah, my, me too. You're getting me there too. <laughs> so I made the decision to to leave financial services, you know, a handful of months later. But emotionally on that flight mm. home is when I thought, you know what, I've, I've got to try. And then I was approached by an external investor to make an investment and that somebody that is known to me and I respect highly and they wanted to back me and invest in the business. And I didn't say yes straight away because I thought, you know what, until now, it's just my money in, it's my time, it's my risk. But as soon as I take that, who's a, who's a, a mate, a colleague, mm. um, you know, an intelligent wholesale investor. So that was the moment where I kind of fully committed because it's bigger than me now. I'm taking, if I'm taking a check from someone, I really am all in. You know, you mentioned your financial services career and it was very traditional. In fact, you studied at Harvard Business School in the advanced management program and you were on sabbatical there during the Boston Marathon bombings. Mm. The attack appears time for maximum impact. The first of the two explosions rocks the sidewalk along the course. White smoke blasting into the air, blowing metal barricades into the street, spewing shrapnel into crowds gathered at the finish. Um, well, firstly, that would have been quite a frightening experience. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, look, it, it was. I mean, it was. It happened fairly early into the program. Mm. My wife and three sons were were living in in, in Back Bay in, in central Boston, and they were using the opportunity to travel. Um, the US East Coast to catch up with other friends and do some sightsee. And my wife was homeschooling our boys. And so before I walked into one of my classes, um, I'd got a text on my phone. It's a beautiful photo I still got. Um, my wife took of of my three boys and, and I, it literally it's at the um, finish line marker. Mm-hmm. And then I went into class and then a, a classmate um, mentioned there's reported explosions. There's been a terrorist attack at the finish line of the of the marathon, and then they jammed all the airwaves because obviously mm-hmm. the the explosions were being detonated that way. So I ended up having about a 20, 25 minute period where all I knew is my family was on the finish line of the marathon and now there's been two bombs set off and, um, you know, there's unknown sort of casualties and, and carnage. Mm. And that that period probably reframed my view on life, that 20, 25 minutes of thinking. How did it reframe your view on life? Um, I suppose the, just the fragility, just how tenuous and precious it is. And I remember thinking immediately, my God, like anything could be gone in the blink of an eye. And I suppose I started to really think about what I wanted to, to achieve and get out of life and, and, and maybe live a life with taking more risk and taking more opportunity and, and not sort of just going down a a more well-trodden path. What's your advice to other people that are looking to potentially do what you've done? Mm. Uh, what's your advice to other business leaders as well in that sort of area? I, I think a thing that I've always had and, and I really encourage 
others is to is to really cultivate their own curiosity. Um, mm-hmm. And I suppose as well, the decision to to make a big change is not a small decision and you don't just wake up one morning with some elevated level of bravado. And if you do, that's probably not the time to make that decision. Yeah, um, probably not. <laughs> if I look at the risk I take commercially now versus where I was in 2015, 2016, leading up to the decision, like I am a profoundly different person in terms of my risk appetite, mm-hmm. Whitney, but that that was gradual. You know, that old metaphor about boiling the frog, you know, increasing the water <laughs> one degree a minute, like... I am the literal frog has been boiled. <laughs> but in the good way. No, in a good way. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah, in yeah. A, good, a good way, in a, mm. in a really good way. Um, but I think people do themselves a disservice if they feel they have to transition to a mindset immediately. In, in my experience, it's more organic than that. Mm, mm. Was there a moment where you did reflect on that and then you thought, wow, you know, I've made this really big leap? What, what was that moment? There's two two quite profound ones in terms of where I really knew this is this is me, this is who I am. Now, one of them was when I had to step up and pay employee salaries out of the redraw from my home loan. And, and I mean, that would have been an anathema to me, mm. you know, even two years earlier. But it wasn't even question. It was like, okay, well, I've just got to do a redraw and and, and, and chuck some money into the company accounts and, you know, we'll sort that out later because we're going, well, this is just a... This is just a cash flow issue, mm-hmm. um, you know, from a trading standpoint. And so later that night, I kind of sat back and thought, my God, that actually happened quite easily. Like I <laughs> never would have considered doing doing that. <laughs> and so I've, I've actually said, you know, when people ask you, how do you know, you know, when you've when you're that, that real founder entrepreneurial mindset? And I said, well, I'll tell you, when you start paying payroll out of the redraw from your mortgage, that's when you know. <laughs> That's the benchmark. <laughs> That's the moment. That's the moment. You mentioned there was another moment as well. Yeah, and that came a little bit later, but I got um, called by one of the, the top global recruitment firms and they called me in to interview about a really senior role with a, you know, with a big multinational. So I thought, you know what, it can't hurt to kick the tyres. I remember going to the interview and first of all, like putting on a suit again, I hadn't, which I hadn't worn in a while. And then just feeling like, hang on, now I feel like an imposter doing this. <laughs> like, what am I doing? It was kind of felt like I was. Who know, is this guy? Yeah. And the interview was, was on a Friday afternoon. And by the time I got out and I'm driving back through Sydney traffic and I'm just thinking, like, like it took, I live on the northern beaches up at Newport and it took me bloody ages to get home. And I'm just, I'm sitting there in my suit and I'm thinking, like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not this person anymore. And that, that was the moment that I knew for sure there was zero going back, probably ever. Nick Langdon, thank you for joining the program. Lovely to be on today, Whitney. Thanks for having me. do successful professionals continue to switch up their careers and take the skills they have and make them transferable to a new job? How do they learn to feel comfortable with the risk of leaving what they know and move to what they want? For more on this, I spoke to TEDx speaker and author of the book titled Switches, celebrated career coach and psychologist, Dr. Don Graham. She joined me from her home in New York. 
Dawn Graham, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, Dawn, in your view, why do some people take that leap into a dream career and others just settle? Well, I think there's been a couple of reasons, actually, Whitney. I think um, for a period of time, it was somewhat the norm to to just stay on a path, and that was what was expected, and that's what a lot of people just did. But over the past couple of decades, I think we've seen more and more that the options are getting much more varied. Certain industries are morphing so quickly that new types of talent are needed and people have a lot of interests. And I think, you know, that that there's people who who certainly pursue their dreams and others that are a little bit more hesitant because there are certainly risks involved, right? There's financial risks, there's reputational risks, there's, you know, that, that idea of loss and, and we don't like loss, but any change that we do comes with loss. For some people, it's going to make sense to make that shift for others, they may decide that the grass isn't greener. And I think it's really interesting that you talk about people think about the risk and the fear rather than asking the question, what if it all works out? Right. Right. I think I think that's human nature. I think when you go all the way back to the caveman days, we, you know, loss aversion is a very real thing where, you know, if you if you made a mistake, you might um, not survive. So it was like, is it worth going out today to get food? If I might get eaten by a lion, ah, I'll probably go mm. hungry today and that's okay. So that, that instinct <laughs> is still with us. Even though we don't have to worry about lions and, and things of that nature, we are very much focused as human beings on avoiding the negative. But I think that's what we need to do when we're, we're looking at a job situation and say, okay, am I weighing the, the positives as much as I'm, I'm, I'm weighting the negatives? And can I be a little bit more objective? And that's where a third party, whether it's a, you know, a family member or um, a coach or somebody who can really ask you the hard questions can help you sort of break through that because, um, you know, it's 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 trying it's our brain trying to protect us, mm-hmm. but in in a lot of ways, it's really just being an obstacle to to where we want to get to. Do you think that there are specific qualities that leapers, people who take that leap, are born with, or you know, can anyone do what they do? Is it a learned behavior? I definitely think it's learned. I think there's there's certainly we all have our our you know personalities and and things that we have tendencies towards. But you know I think it really comes down to having an open mindset, which um, you know is is uh, can be learned through self reflection and and really understanding how you approach the world. Do you see it as the you know what's happening to you is external, or do you feel like you have some level of control over it? And once you you understand how you see the world then you can make some changes that align with being more of a risk taker. And risk taking is a continuum. It doesn't mean that you have to leave your job and um, quit tomorrow and just jump out there and take a leap. It takes somebody who is willing to face reality, meaning that some things may not work out. You have to be open to failures because that's going to happen in anything that's new that you try. And that is actually part of the learning experience. So I think you have to approach it with that realistic view and the recognition that, yeah, you're not going to have all the answers, but you will get through it. It reminds me of that um, saying, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. (laughs) 
It's the same thing. You look at the whole and you think, oh my goodness, how am I going to actually achieve that? But if you break it into pieces, you find that you make a lot of change actually quite quickly when you look back on it. One thing I wanted to talk to you about was um, in your TED Talk, you talk about how you're an introvert, which I find really interesting because you don't seem like it. So you obviously have techniques to help you with your own career. What have you applied to yourself in your own career? Yes, I am an introvert and I know a lot of people find that hard to believe, but it really has to do with where you get your energy. And I get Mm -hmm. my energy from very focused work, from really thinking internally and reflecting from alone and quiet time and making sure I'm not overstimulated. And so, so for anyone out there who feels like they may fall on that side of the spectrum, I think it's just really a matter of of taking care of yourself. So if you're going to go to a networking event or you're going to put yourself out there in a situation that's really draining, having those moments where you can recharge are going to be critical. And I think in a job search, especially where you are networking, you're probably interviewing, you're putting yourself out there in ways that make you feel vulnerable. That is a very difficult process for for those of us who don't like to do those things. So what's going to work for you? I think that's the other part of us getting in our head. We we just decide it's all or nothing. I'm not good at networking or I'm not good at at interacting with people, so I'm just not going to do it. So why are so many people uncomfortable with networking? I think people aren't as uncomfortable as they think they are. They're uncomfortable about networking when it comes to asking for something that makes them feel vulnerable like a job. I don't think we're uncomfortable mm-hmm. asking a friend or our neighbor for a, a restaurant that they like that we might be able to go to. Or, you know, where did they get their veterinarian for their new dog? Because we we think we need a new veterinarian. Like stuff like that, mm-hmm. I think we're mm-hmm. very good at at networking. But when it comes to asking about our careers, our careers are so tied up with our identities. You know, we've kind of created this culture of shame around the job search when in fact, in my opinion, it should be a social activity because we should all be helping each other because we're all going to be getting new jobs. The average tenure is about four years in a current job. So I just look at it as, hey, this is my time to ask for help and your time's going to be maybe in a few years. And this is what I'd love to see the process evolve into. So again, I think it's really what we're networking about that trips us up. I think you're right. Somehow we have created some sort of culture of shame around looking for a job. And I, I don't know what's behind that. I, I, have you thought about that much? Well, I think it it does go back to what careers used to be. So career used to be you stay with a company for 40 years, you get your your um, retirement watch mm-hmm. on the way out. And, <laughs> you know, and, and that was what, what it used to be. But now, I mean, we have people, especially in, in tech fields, staying two years and moving to the next job. And if they're not, they're they're seen as not really progressive and not, yeah. not go-getters. So, so the model has really shifted, but that internalization of being between jobs or even taking off to, to raise a family or to take care of a loved one or taking a career gap to travel, whatever it is, this idea of, oh, I have to hide these gaps. But yeah, right now there is a stigma about it. And quite frankly, there is a lot of data that shows that people who have been long-term unemployed 
are biased against in the workplace. So, so there's, you know, I know that there's a data trail to support that. That brings me to my next point. In your book, Switches, you talk about rebranding yourself to align your personal identity with your new aspirations. Is that an easy thing to do? Or, you know, it, it actually sounds quite difficult. It is. And I and I, I remember my editor when she was reading the book saying, this sounds hard. And I said, <laughs> it is, which is why I have a, a big portion of the book dedicated to it. But I think the challenge is that many of us um, want to do different things and we have a lot of transferable skills, but the hiring market still is looking for matches. So they haven't quite caught up. They, they look for somebody who has X number of years of experience in this or has a... Um, yeah. Yeah. you know, title that has this. And so we have to do the heavy lifting as job seekers to rebrand ourselves in a way that the hiring person can see us as a fit. But it's not something that I would say you can go to your, your LinkedIn profile or go to a career coach and say, okay, take all of my transferable skills and make me look like a different profession. I think it takes mm-hmm. conversations. I think it takes introspection. I think it takes really understanding your target audience and what their pain points are and how Mm -hmm. your transferable skills can solve those pain points. And I do think it's a process. And depending how big of a switch you want to make, it can take longer. If you're you're making a, a smaller switch, say an industry switch, it might not take as long. But if you're looking to change industry and function, it may take a little bit longer. But I think mm. that's not a bad thing because I think as you go through that, that metamorphosis, you're building your contacts, you're building confidence in yourself and how you're presenting yourself in any way. And I think that's a big part of where people get tripped up. <laughs> We've talked about the stress of changing careers, but there's also a lot of stress around leaving a well-paid career to build your dream business. And we've spoken to a few people in this episode about that. What are the key things that people need to be prepared for when embarking on that sort of endeavor, do you think? That can be very scary because people view it as giving up security for something mm. that that's less secure. But I will tell you, that's actually not the case. Our jobs are not secure at, at any point in time as we've learned. Uh, it is an illusion, isn't it? It's, it's an a illusion. huge illusion. We <laughs> hang on to it because we get a paycheck every other week or every month and we think we're secure and we look at entrepreneurship or having our own business is not secure, but it's equally, it, you know, they both have their pros and cons. So I think first and foremost, we have to get comfortable with the idea that job security only exists within us and our ability to market ourselves, build our skills and stay connected to those mm. decision makers in our industry. So that's first and foremost. But secondly, I think that um, you can dip your toe into that world without making a full leap in so many ways. So portfolio careers are getting very popular where you might have an anchor job, but you get your income from another source or two other sources to see if this fits you. I think one of the things that surprises a lot of people who want to go the entrepreneurial route is that you, you don't fall in love with the product. You really have to fall in love with the problem. And the reason that's an important distinction is because most of what you'll be doing as an entrepreneur probably isn't what your core expertise says. Aside from you know, the legal, the, the accounting, the finance, all of the pieces that come with running a business, when the problem shifts, your solution may have to shift. And that solution may look different than what you thought in your mind and what you love to do. Do you have practical examples of people who've taken these leaps and done so successfully? 
I have. And I can tell you, they've not all done it in one felt sweep. So I can give you an example of somebody mm. who did what I call a stepping stone switch, which I think for those who tend to be a little bit more risk averse might be a great option. So it was somebody who was a corporate attorney in a huge firm who wanted to work in human resources in a startup, a tech startup. So both a functional and a an industry switch, which is one of the tough, toughest switches. I call it a double switch. And of course, was not really getting a lot of feedback or, or interviews based on her resume. And what she decided to ultimately do is she moved from the legal side of her large corporation into HR as somebody who worked with employee policy and, you know, it was, it was slightly a legal mm-hmm. role, but it was under the umbrella of human resources. She built her credibility there. She built her contacts there. And after two years, she took that HR experience and, and moved into a human resources role in a tech company. So, so she did it in a way that took longer, but it was a way that also enabled her to keep her salary at a certain level and keep her status mm-hmm. without really having to go all the way back to the beginning. You know, I've been reflecting of, over my career during this conversation, and I have to say, I have not landed any job through a formal job ad. It's always been through a contact and I think a lot of people don't realize that. As a matter of fact, Harvard did a study, and I think they they found only 15% of people recalled getting helped when they got their job. But then when they dug into it more, you have to look at what does help look like? Help does not necessarily mean that somebody hired you. Help could be that they, they introduced mm. you to somebody who introduced you to somebody, or they introduced you to the company that you hadn't heard of, and that's how you, you learned about it. There's so many ways that people can help you. And I think this is the heart of my TED Talk, that we often don't start with the people we know. I think our network, which I call ambassadors, have two core qualities that make it successful for us as job seekers. First, they are invested in us, so they're willing to spend their social capital, Mm. and that means introductions or referrals. But do the people who know and love you and want to see you do well, do they know what you want to do? And we often don't have these conversations with our friends or our neighbors or, you know, the, the parents that we hang out with, our kids are hanging out. And and so we're missing this huge opportunity to say, hey, you know, I, I don't know if you know that I'm looking for a role, but I, I'm in technology and this is what I do. Because when you start those conversations with people you know, it's inevitable how they, they just, oh, I know somebody or I just, just saw an article on that. If we can get better at asking somebody for something specific that they can help us with, they will happily do it. <laughs> Don Graham, thank you for joining the program. I've had such a fun time. Thank you for inviting me, Whitney. Well, my next guest is one of those unique individuals who follows his passion and takes change in his stride. His name is Eric D'Esposito, and for the past couple of years, he's been with KPMG Enterprise. So, Eric, you're from Capri, and your family operates tourism businesses there. 
Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, yes, I was born in Italy and I grew up on the island of Capri near Naples, close to the Amalfi Coast. My family runs still today a sort of a small beach resort on the island. Mm-hmm. So I started helping when I was 14, 15 years old and growing up. That's where we would spend all our summers and yeah. So Capri is where most people want to go, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) I get that a lot, Whitney. That's the first thing everyone tells me when I tell them where I'm from. Like, why are you here? (laughs) Um, So you worked in the family business. What made you decide to leave Capri? Um, A lot of people would probably think of the position that I was in as the ideal position. I would Mm. be working for like six, seven months of the year and then essentially be on holiday for the rest. Mm -hmm. But for me, that was not enough. I've always been quite adventurous. I've always wanted to experience different things. So Mm. I've always looked for a way out of the island. Mm. And how did your family feel about you moving away from the family business? Um, They've always been very supportive, to be honest, Whitney. Um, Mm. My mum actually emigrated as very, very, very young girl to Australia. Then mm-hmm. she went back on holidays to Italy. She met my father and she was basically stuck there. <laughs> she knew exactly how I was probably feeling and why I wanted to get away from Capri. So no, they've, they've never had an issue with that. And so your next career move, as I understand it, was to train as a pilot. Is that correct? Um, oh, there's a lot between that and the pilot. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I came to Australia in the year 2000 and mm-hmm. my English wasn't great. So I started working in restaurants and just to try and get a bit more confidence. And mm-hmm. then I got a job at a ice cream franchise. Mm-hmm. And then I've always had this dream of learning how to fly. And I thought, why not just have a go? And I got my pilot license. So did you work commercially as a pilot? Yes, I did fly a little bit in Australia Mm -hmm. to begin with. And then I went to the US and got a 737 endorsement. Um, And I did a bit of work in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And then for different reasons, I basically left Indonesia and came back to Australia. So, and did you, when you came back to Australia, did you decide to hang up the pilot's hat? Yes, I did not have as many hours as they were required to be able to apply to a big airline. So the other option I would have had would have been to go back flying in the outback. Mm. Um, And while that was probably the best flying that I've ever done, at that stage I was already probably 35, 36. Mm -hmm. So I thought it's probably time to actually get a proper job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, once you you decided to stop flying, you went to university as a mature age student. What was it that drove you to do that? I have always been interested in business, particularly finance. So when I decided to stop flying, I thought, what am I going to do now? And I just literally Googled what's the best Bachelor of Commerce in Sydney. I was 39 years old that I started uni. So I was literally studying with people that were half my age. (laughs) Was that a bit weird or was that good? It was weird at the beginning. And in Mm. fact, I was a little bit hesitant. I actually absolutely loved it. I had the best experience and to this day I'm still in touch with a whole lot of friends that I met at Union. Yeah, they're all about half my age. But I think they were also, as much as I got a lot from them, I hope that they got something from me as well because they actually saw that no matter how old you are or no matter where you're coming from and whatever it is, just 
Have a go. Mm. Yeah, I did my master's degree, I think, in journalism when I'd already been working for 10 years in journalism. And a lot of people were saying to me in my classes, you know, why are you here? (laughs) You've already got a career in journalism. But I just found it really fascinating. I really was interested in kind of digging under the hood of what what we do as journalists and, you know, the purpose of the fourth estate and stuff. So I can see the value of being a mature age student. And also by that stage, you're really kind of focused because you're committed to it too, aren't you? Yes, definitely. In fact, I started a business degree in Italy when I was 19 and I never finished it while here in Sydney, it was basically incredibly easy for me and I passed it all with flying colours and yeah, it was, it was great. In this episode, we're talking about people who make career leaps. I'm calling them leapers. You've made quite a few and you've also like moved country and you mentioned that you were adventurous. You've always been adventurous. Is that what drives you to to make these changes? Because a lot of people would be quite nervous about making those kinds of moves. I have always been very conscious of the fact that life can change suddenly. Mm-hmm. So I've always tried to really follow my passions and try and really take any occasions that comes my way. Um, I've never put limits. I've never thought, oh, maybe you're too old or too young at some mm-hmm. stage for some of the stuff that I've done. I've just had a go at everything and anything. But, I mean, in making those moves, do you ever experience sort of moments of doubt or sort of second-guess yourself? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, but at the end, I always go back to the same thing, which is you only have one life. Just have a go. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I also know that I am quite resilient. So if stuff really goes wrong, I will always find a way to pick myself up. So you're at KBMG now. What is it that brought you to this point? In the second year of my studies, we had like a career fair Mm -hmm. and I met the manager from KPMG. Through my flying through the outback, I saw a part of Australia that no one ever talks about. You never get told about Indigenous Australia and how unfortunately Mm -hmm. a lot of people live the way that Indigenous Australia do. And I always felt a little bit guilty about that. Mm-hmm. Because me, as a foreigner, I was flying and I had all these opportunities and these people that are really, like, the real Australians were living in those conditions. So one of the things was always for me to try and do something about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked this manager at this career fair if KPMG, they were doing anything to help Indigenous Australians. And she told me, oh, yeah, you know, we've got the reconciliation plan and there's the Jawan secondment and all that. Mm. So that really, really struck me and I applied for a vacationer position and again, I was with people that were half my age. Was it, you know, a lot of people with your life experience and your various careers, a lot of people would want to come in at a higher level. How did you kind of go, you know what, that's fine. I'm, I'm happy to come in at that level and, um, and learn. Yes, I do have the life experience that obviously someone at 20 years old would not have. But mm. um, I've had the same comments from a lot of people. Oh, you should have just applied as a senior. Mm. But I think you pay for that further down the track. Um, mm-hmm. I think you just really do have to learn the ropes. doesn't matter how old or how good you think you are. <laughs> I think you've got to yeah. start at the bottom. That's a great philosophy to go by because a lot of people don't. A lot of people want to fast track their careers actually and you do pay for it down the track because you have gaps in your learning. Yeah. 
So what's next, Eric? I am currently enjoying my role at KPMG. Uh, mm. I work in enterprise. I get to meet a lot of interesting people and I get a lot of variety. People that have actually started from nothing and now they've got multi-million dollar businesses. Mm. So I enjoy very much that space. So yeah, I don't see myself going anywhere for a little while longer. Eric Diaz-Pazito, thank you for joining us on the program. Thank you, Whitney. It's been a pleasure. All right, well, that's all for the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the program. To look at Dawn's TEDx speech and to learn more about her book, Switches, check out the show notes. And you can also find out a bit more about Wimp to Warrior in there too. Until next time, thank you for listening to What Happens Next. been listening to What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Podcasts.